one of the biggest assets we have is that local connection and that local presence. Our CEOs and our members, they are in the grocery store, they're in the shops, and if they're not doing anything right, they're going to hear it directly from the community every time they go out to church or the store. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and today I'm down at Broadband Communities, where we are in Houston uh, at this wonderful event. And here I am with Brian O'Hara, the Senior Director of uh, Regulatory Issues uh, for Telecom and Broadband at NRECA, which you all don't call NRECA, but is NRECA. Correct. We usually inside the building go by NRECA. Uh, what is NRECA? So we are the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. We represent uh, 900 electric cooperatives in 48 states. We serve 56% of the land mass with electricity uh, and serve 92% of uh, persistent poverty counties in the U.S. And of our 900 members, 830 are distribution members, which means they serve the retail electric. And about 210 to 215 of those have now gotten into broadband in some shape or form. There's a, a direction I didn't expect we'd go right away, but 92% of the persistent poverty counties. And I think that just recalls that the electric co-ops were not created with one mission in mind of get electrons out to people, right? No, I mean, they were really there to serve the community. Um, and they, many of them, they do many other things other than just electric. Um, and of course, electric powers everything else, right? Without that, the community is not going to be doing much. <laughs> and yeah. certainly, certainly not broadband. Yeah, that's uh, it's one of those things where um, we sometimes have these questions about what's more important to people, internet or electricity? And it's like, well, you know, it's kind of hard to do much with the internet without electricity. That's right. <laughs> so um, this is a point at which I think we've now crossed 200 rural electric cooperatives who are providing service. Correct. Correct. And at one point, I felt like we were thinking kind of like a max ceiling of like 300 or 400 that would be doing it. Do you still think that that's a ceiling or like what's the progress that you're seeing? As we've been talking about here this week, a historic level of funding is coming, right? So definitely we think another 100, 200 will get into this. But then as we're starting to see these more creative partnerships, right, uh, I think as we've all talked about before, electric ops are pretty conservative in the way they, they go about their business, right, don't like to spend a lot of money. Now as we're seeing more and more partnerships and more unique and new models of partnerships, that may encourage even more to get in in some way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. right? And, and the, what I like to say is, there's plenty of electric co-ops that are deploying at least some fiber for their electric operation needs. And I tell them, well, first, if you're going to do it, put more fiber in so you have more capacity. You never know what you're going to need down the way. And number two is lease it out. If you are not, don't want to be an ISP, lease it out so someone else can help serve your community. Mm -hmm. And you can get a little money because that's not cheap to deploy fiber. Yes, and, and they have a particular asset in the poles, the crews. And so they could really be involved in the physical aspect of some of this, even if they don't want to be involved in like marketing and competition and all that. True. Uh, you know, marketing and another one uh, hurdle that my members talk about to get into business is the whole different level of uh, a customer service. One of my members put it really well on a panel. He said, listen, if someone goes out and buys a new toaster and plugs in and it doesn't work, they're not calling their electric utility. But if someone goes out and buy a new TV and you're in broadband and it's not connecting to the Internet, Guess what? You're they getting a call. They don't know who else to call, and the co-op's not going to tell them to pound sand. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. So it's not the way it is. And you know, one thing you forgot about our assets that uh, we also have is we have a deep commitment to that community, and our customer satisfaction rating, people usually love their co-op. Mm -hmm. And so when they get into another business, of course, they see them in that same vein. And, and mm -hmm. truthfully, that's probably one of the most important things. And when you see partnerships, a lot of times it's 
say X and X broadband powered by X co-op because they want to still, you know, use that name that has a great reputation in those mm-hmm. communities. Let's unpack for a second why some co-ops aren't doing it, because I feel like sometimes people don't get the right understanding of why that decision can be hard to make. And I'll note, I mean, I've championed New Hampshire Electric Co-op and Delta Montrose, where yep. the co-op originally said no and the community changed their mind. But I think it's worth noting, this is not the first new idea that has come down the pike. Co-ops have been burned before, right? Some of them were involved with building nuclear power plants that went way over budget, and they had to figure out how to do that. Some of them got into propane or, or satellite dish-related technologies. And and before I let you speak on this, I just want to, like, and the thing to keep in mind is, like we said, these might be the most important entities, like community entities in the region. These are responsible for economic development. If they are, if their existence is threatened, that could hurt the entire community uh, in terms of being able to attract industry and make sure it's a competitive place to live. Uh, you are 100% correct on all those fronts. So when I came on board uh, almost six years ago, I heard from a lot of electric co-ops, oh, this broadband thing, it's another propane. Right. Right. And a lot of them lost their shirts there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing is, this is a lot of money. I mean, this is like doubling the amount of infrastructure they have. And that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you look back on it, even these electric cops that got into the business, the electric business back in the day, they didn't build it in a day. Right. It took it took years. (laughs) That's right. And uh, And community involvement. Exactly. (laughs) Right. So it is a a big risk. So um, and also there can be a generational kind of belief there there's been uh, folks i've talked to that said hey i've been an electric utility for 70 years why should i change or be anything else mm-hmm. all right i think in in some co-ops you're starting to see a new generation take over that may be thinking a little differently um but that being said i have some uh, uh electric co-op ceos that uh, are of the older generation and they've dove in right in recognizing the need for the community yeah that's that's one of those areas where i think it is both true that uh folks who are um who have retired who are older may be some of the folks who are less convinced of the need for this, but we've also seen 83 year old champions of making these investments. Oh, totally. Uh, and I look at the average age of some of our board of directors and a lot of these guys, they see the need. They have definitely realized it. And, and let's also be honest that increasingly, if you want any social services, you got to fill out those applications online. There are so many things. And then one of the biggest things in rural America is telehealth. Right. They could not have a medical facility for 50 miles. Mm-hmm. But if they can make a call or do a video call with their doctor, it can really save them time and money. Yeah. And one of the most important areas of that is triage, too. When you're sitting there, it's, it's not the case where you're like, oh, like I have to have this thing done. A lot of times you're like, do I need to go in? There? Do I need to go in there? Do I need to drive when like gas is five dollars a gallon? Am I going to have to drive 120 miles to find out I didn't need to go in? You're right, especially when the gas prices, well, they're, they've come down a little bit, but mm-hmm. they're still high. Yeah, when it was at their height, uh, yeah, that was a big question. You said, like, okay, why should I do that drive for, for 50 miles mm-hmm. when it may not be anything, right? And they can do a quick call, get a consultation, and then decide whether they really need to do that and get further help. Yeah, and I just say that because I think this summer we're going to see that again. We're going to see those prices go up. And I remember, I mean, this seems like not, not that long ago, but also a long time ago. Um, my mom worked at the Mayo Clinic. I, I, li- I grew up, uh, I, well, I, for five years of my life, I lived in Rochester <laughs> and I paid attention to the Mayo Clinic. And when gas prices hit $4 a gallon, I was paying attention. Uh, that was the first time they had been that high. And they found that a significant number of people chose to stop coming in for service at that point. Just psychologically, people thought it's too far. It's too expensive. Yeah. And 
telehealth is a great example of how we can overcome some of those problems, and it's, it's very important. And uh, it, it's empowered by broadband. You need a good connection. Well, I think one of the things that your members have to deal with is uh, these increased storms. Um, you know, it's, they're all over the news. You get these super powerful storms, and they're ripping through someone's electric lines. And like you said earlier, a lot of times when you're in a rural area, there's going to be a co-op that's uh, that's got those lines up. They have to figure out how to how to uh, keep as many people up as possible and then repair as fast as possible. Yeah, no, you're 100% correct. And that's where kind of the broadband is kind of like a, a, a win-win for electric co-ops because they get more um, awareness of what's going on with their network, right? They can do uh, the, the SCADA controls uh, and network monitoring. So they, you know, can pinpoint when something goes down, where it goes down. Instead of before, you'd have to just drive the line until you finally found the spot where it went down, right? So there's a lot more um, automation and, uh, and information that they can use to help keep the resiliency much higher and kind of keep those um, outages, hopefully, from happening. But at the very least, uh, being able to pinpoint them and fix them and correct them as quickly as possible. So do you have any interesting anecdotes I can bring that home for people? Because I got to think that you've heard some interesting stories from different folks. I hear time and again how much more efficient the network is once you have this broadband. And I think we did a report a couple of years ago, and I think it found that an electric co-op that runs fiber all the way to the home and has uh, you know AMI capabilities, full, uh, full uh, smart grid, can save millions of dollars a year uh, by inefficiency. And like when you get in, like say, the summer, when all everyone's running their AC and they've got that peak, well, they can, they can turn off our AC for mm-hmm. a few minutes or a hot water heater, at those highest peak times, so they don't have to go buy additional electricity on the you know at the height of the market. Mm-hmm. So it saves them a lot of money, um, and it can keep from uh, having brownouts or blackouts from happening, or raising rates, or raising <laughs> rates. Correct. There's, there's no money tree that the co-ops tap into. <laughs> yep. And so I mean, you look at it now. Um, a lot of our areas have been losing population, so broadband's helping to keep people there. We do have some other areas where uh, the population has been growing a bit, or the demand for energy has been growing a bit. And it's very expensive to get new generation. And if they can just make the, uh, the, uh, the grid run a little more efficiently, that can stave off the need for additional generation capacity. Now, when we're thinking about partnerships, I'm curious. I think, you know, we've talked previously on the show about different partnerships, but I'm curious if there's any interesting models that you might highlight aside from uh, obviously electric co-ops working with each other and to some extent working with other entities or buying other entities. Yeah, so it's kind of across the board. I think I've seen electric co-ops partner with about any kind of entity out there. I would say most traditionally we see electric co-ops first working with other electric co-ops and second working with telephone co-ops and small telephone and privately owned companies. And a lot of this is because they have so much in common, especially co-op to co-op, mm-hmm. right? It's that co-op mission, that mentality. Uh, but I have members that are partnering with, uh, working very closely with T-Mobile. I got small uh, members that are working with small cable companies, with Wisps, um, even a couple that are working with midsize ILEX. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of across the board. Foremost, I see the co-op to co-op, the small uh, telephone co-ops and electric co-ops working together. But once again, I think we're starting to see more new, more creative ways of going about this. I know some are actually working with uh, municipalities as well. We're seeing an increasing number that are working uh, in, in with that municipality. I've had several uh, co-ops that told me that a local municipality wanted to build its own fiber network but didn't want to be the ISP. And they would come to the co-op that was mm-hmm. in broadband and say, I'd love you to operate this because, you know, it's not my bailiwick, it's not my strength. And uh, there's a lot of great examples of, of that happening. Yes, I think that is a, a dream for a lot of cities is to have not only a trusted partner but one that is rooted in the in the region that has a lot of reason to try to benefit the area. 
Totally agree. And, you know, I'd say that one of the biggest assets we have is that local connection and that local presence. Uh, as we always say, and the telephone co-ops say it themselves too, uh, our CEOs and our members, they are in the grocery store, they're in the shops, and if they're not doing anything right, they're going to hear it directly from the community every time they go out to church or the store. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are for you. I've heard different numbers between four and 10 homes per linear mile where you might be able to make the business model work without needing too much of a subsidy. But one of the things I think that those nearby towns can bring is like helping to boost that average up. So you can make excess money, you know, make more money, on a, you have less of a per home cost to connect those homes in the city. And then you can get out to those rural areas better. So because I think the rural co-op members are always thinking, wait a minute, why are you connecting that city when I need something out here in my farm? Yeah, no, you're 100% right. On average, our members on the electric side serve eight customers per mile. But we also have a chunk of members that were in rural areas in the past, but aren't so rural anymore. Yes. <laughs> we have a members just outside here uh, in Houston. We have members you know, just outside of Nashville and Atlanta, even Washington, D.C. There's one out by Dulles Airport. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if you take them out of it, that eight per mile drops down. Right. Right. And, and you're 100% usually the number just I hear. Paternales out alone, and that probably significantly changes it. <laughs> exactly. You're 100% right. Um, so I hear that around eight per mile is around where you could probably do it without a mm-hmm. subsidy, but it's still tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the grant money is important. And you're 100% right that some of our members will go outside of their service territory to, to, to grab a pocket of population, right, more, more populous, so it can raise their overall average of their whole service territory, and then they can afford to, uh, to reach some of those, the less, uh, less populated areas. Do you have any uh, interesting highlights? I mean, I would say that, uh, for instance, like, you know, I've talked a lot with John Chambers. He worked with Oklahoma Electric. They were just, they were like one of the fastest growing, just like super efficient, rapidly growing ones. Any other, um, any other highlights for you of like some of the ones that stand out? Well, so I like to look at some of these new uh, models I'm seeing, and I'm going to use Virginia as a couple examples. This last week I was down uh, at Rappahannock Electric Co-op. Oh, yeah. So they had wanted to get into broadband, and they had signed up for the art off, and they got sued by a landowner for uh, violating their, their easements, mm-hmm. and so they dropped out of this the auction. Is so frustrating for me. It was very frustrating. <laughs> uh, I agree. And so they were shaking their head and trying to figure out what they could do since they lost out on that. Um, well, the neighboring co-op, Central Virginia, had been in it for a while. Was Firefly, right? Firefly Broadband, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to them and said, well, hey, you help us build out the network and we'll be the ISP. So it's a very interesting partnership there. And they're actually working with the large investor-owned utility, Dominion, mm-hmm. Dominion Power there, who is also leasing out broadband. So they're also serving some of those um, more rural areas served by the large investor-owned electric utility. So I think that's a very unique model, mm-hmm. um, and they're trying to start building that pretty quick. That's another state, Virginia, where they've had a state broadband plan and a state office, and they put some money towards this for a while. Yeah, Dr. Tamara Holmes is, I think, really helped to lead to really smart, uh, all-encompassing approaches. Yeah, they are truly a, a leader on the state level of, of what what should be emulated in other states. And hopefully we'll be seeing that more with all these uh, the new uh, state broadband offices popping up. Yes. Are there other states where you would highlight something that's going really well, where the state is getting something done? And I know, like, for people who might be listening and thinking, why isn't Brian mentioning us? Like, this is your classic problem of who's your favorite child. Like, yes. there's a lot of yes. states doing good things. But what are some that you might pick on? Uh, I've heard great things about Minnesota. 
I think they have the, <laughs> don't they have the border to border? Is it your home yeah, state? No, I think Minnesota had been really great. I'm a little bit worried about, I mean, there's like, uh, uh, you know, I think it's um, East Central Electric. Yep. They have a really great plan, but it's a big plan in the state. You know, when the state got started, they had a uh, twenty million, twenty-five million dollars a year. Well, like that's a, I think, three hundred million dollar project, and uh, I would say the state could do better about figuring out how to work with a project that's going to connect everyone in multiple counties. So, I, you know, I'm always going to brag. I think Minnesota's great, but uh, there's some work to do there, perhaps. Yeah, I get it. Uh, I hear great things also about uh, Missouri and what yes. they've done. Right, and we just had a co-op there that won, I think, forty-seven million uh, to dive into broadband. I think White mm-hmm. River Valley. So there, there's. More cases than I could ever name here. We'd have to go on for an extra hour just to you know, go through the alphabet list. And now at the same time, and we don't have to get into it if it might be uh, not helpful, but uh, there are some states that still restrict, right? I mean, Nebraska is a state that has severe restrictions on all kinds of public power systems, and I think there's some electric co-ops there. So, yeah, Nebraska is kind of a unique. It's all public power, but they have public utility districts, and they are members of okay. ours. okay. All right, so now I think they're starting to be creative. I started to hear more things that maybe they'll work with some private ISPs, so they won't be the provider, but they can build out the network, which they're going to need for electric operations anyways. Mm-hmm. Some other states I know, I think it was touched upon on the panel earlier, you know, Tennessee, uh, electric co-ops can get into broadband, but they still have to um, only conserve within their electric footprint for now. And I think North Carolina and South Carolina have uh, very similar restrictions. Mm-hmm. If it's not just their electric footprint, then just within a few miles of their electric footprint. Now, is that for Internet service or because this is where I don't remember the details. I thought Tennessee liberalized that and they could do everything but television. Am I is that am I crazy remembering that? Now, my understanding is they still restrict even just the broadband yeah. to within their electric footprint at this point in time. That's wild. It's just. <laughs> yeah. Now, there were some that are going out, you know, if they are partnering with a, say, telephone co-op, mm-hmm. then obviously then then the they can work things out well in the way the the tennessee had worked for the municipalities which is a law that goes back to 98 that i find hilarious a municipality that is offering service they can offer non-advanced service like the limit is on advanced services and so chattanooga for instance could literally build a telephone system across this the, the state and they could offer like 40 megabit internet service but they could not offer more than 45 megabit from the definitions that i think were in play in, in 1998 and so it's kind of like you really get a sense of of the the ludicrousness of these restrictions yeah and uh you know that's a great story and one of those ones that you look back at it now and you totally scratch your head uh, you know, that's that's the old saying with legislation, right? It's like making sausage. You never know how it kind of <laughs> works out and what comes out in the end. Yeah. You don't want to leave it out for too long. That's exactly. For sure. <laughs> it can get a little bad. Now, there was an issue with some places. I mean, a lot of places where you have electric cooperatives, you also have them within their territory and, and often um, overlapping in odd ways. You have telephone cooperatives. Many telephone cooperatives have been making great investments. However, there are areas where there is still a need for better service. And there was some friction that we saw in D.C. where we saw, I think, these scarce public dollars in, in a conflict between electrics and the, and the telephone co-ops. What's happening there? So I think the telephone co-ops serve about 30% of the U.S. and we serve 56% of the landmass. Uh, so there was a lot of overlap there. And usually the electric co-op uh, can be a larger entity and a little better funded. So I think there's been some concern on behalf of some of the telephone co-ops uh, that the electric co-ops are going to come in and either buy them out, uh, t- you know, take them out of business because they overbuild. Mm-hmm. And for a while, Eric said there was a drive within my membership to all go it alone. But I think that's starting to change now. Well, first, we, we have some good conversations 
with NTCA, NREC and NTCA talk regularly. We just filed joint comments on the categorical exclusion proposal um, for NEPA at mm-hmm. NTIA. So we work together where we can and we have some good dialogue. That is to try to reduce the the permitting challenges in a lot of like rural areas and Correct. federal lands. And Correct. Things like that. Exactly. So uh, we do work together and um, we're continuing to have conversations. But what we're seeing now is more and more of partnerships, right? So in my six plus years, there were some partnerships early on. Some didn't go great. Um, then there was that drive amongst my membership to go it alone. Now I'm starting to see more looking for partnerships and looking to their telcos mm-hmm. in their area to partner. So it's actually been like kind of full circle there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, uh, that is helping. I think there's a lot of um, kind of better relationships going on there. And also, I'll also point to one reason that is. I remember talking to at least one state broadband official, and when he first came on board several years ago, he would talk to the telephone co-ops and say, hey, are you talking to the electric co-ops? They'd be like, no, we're not talking to them. Then he'd come and talk to the electric co-ops and say, hey, are you guys talking to the telephone co-ops? They'd be like, nah, I don't talk to those guys. But then he got them in a room, and he just did that a couple times. Things started to work, and then you started to see these partnerships emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is remarkable how there's a... Um a friction that has to be overcome, like this inertia. And it, it, to some extent, if you could have like a, just a party and these people just hang out for a bit with a beer, they, they might have a lot more partnerships develop. Yeah. And I think, you know, you look at it state by state, like your state, Minnesota and Tennessee are two states where I see a lot of partnerships for, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. the way the relationships were in that city. You heard uh, Jonathan West earlier on our panel uh, with Trilight, how he had a great relationship with the CEO from Volunteer. And that's what really got it going. So it really can be just relationships. And one of the things I think people should realize, which took me a while to figure out, I don't know, pop quiz, do you know uh, the smallest electric rural co-op, how many meters they have? Man, that's a tough question. Uh, I know gonna, we, we just had a new member join that long ago, Block Island in Rhode Island, and that's okay. pretty small. But I thought there was one in Wisconsin and a small island in the Great Lakes. But I think almost all of them have more than 10,000 meters, probably more than, you know, like in that area. Would that strike you as being right? I'd say that's our average. I think ten to okay. twelve thousand is our average. Okay. I think we have a few, one or two that have just a few hundred. Okay. Electric meters. That's what I, I think is interesting. Is in the telephone space, the the that's family-owned telephone companies and the co-ops. They may be in the hundreds or the low thousands, whereas the electric co-ops are often in the tens of thousands. I thought, but as you're saying, your average is ten, twelve thousand. So yeah, I, I think you're right there. I think we are. Larger, I think. Uh, if you talk to NTC, I think their stats is I think their average is four thousand to five thousand. Mm-hmm. So we're definitely probably about double that size normally. Right, and that's a big deal. I mean, it is. You know, uh, on the in a, recently there was a discussion about uh, Utopia Fiber, and they were talking about how they really didn't uh, achieve a kind of uh, ability to be sustainable until they had fifteen thousand subscribers. And so that should give people a sense that like this is challenging, not just because of the density, but just overall. You know, you want to have more than 15,000 subscribers if you can handle it. Yeah, economies of scale matter in these businesses, right? So, you know, that's one thing that's going to be interesting down the road. Look at historic universal service had a uh, ongoing OPEX component. Mm-hmm. These new programs do not. Right. Yeah. You got some of these uh, areas where, you know, you talk about like four or 10 homes per mile. There's places where there's uh, multiple miles between homes. And, there is. Uh, and yeah, you're going to have someone that's driving for two or three hours. They're only going to work on one or two customers per day. Yep. They just can't do it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I do have members that have came to me that they have sections of their service territory where it's like, a, you know, a person every half mile right mm-hmm. i mean it's just a it's it's just so low uh it, it's hard to believe that uh, they're actually getting the service out there but they're doing it 
Yeah. And then, you know, that's one of the things you're running on a lean ship and, uh, you know, you lose a 288 count fiber. You got to splice it together. I've learned a little bit about what that takes. And, you know, that's not something you do in a few hours. Yeah. So I was actually talking to a member the other day. You know, in a lot of rural areas, you go out there, you see a lot of bullet holes and uh, stop signs or road mm-hmm. signs. Well, now people have taken to uh, taking shots at fiber cable. Yeah. Slicing fiber is a lot of work and it takes some time. And that means downtime, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's unfortunate, but uh, it's something we're seeing. Right. You you both have people who are aiming for it and people who are lousy shots trying to hit birds. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been wonderful to catch up with you, Brian. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Great to join you. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.